Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Thank you. I, um, I need to thank Rabbi Yanklowitz for inviting me uh, as part of uh, Valley Beit Midrash's speaker series. It's been really nice to be out in Phoenix. I was able to go for a four-mile run today in a pair of shorts, which you can't do in Chicago this time of year, believe me. Um, before I get into my more formal presentation, I like to open with and, and allow um, you to, to meet me a little bit. When I was uh, 17, I left my uh, childhood home in New York. I had been raised um, in Riverdale, New York. And um, my family is German modern Orthodox, which means that in some ways we were like modern Orthodox, and in some ways we were ultra-Orthodox. So when I was a bar mitzvah, I used to wear a fedora and a jacket all the time. Um, but there was always an expectation that I would go to university and get a real uh, secular education. Um, but So there was always a little bit of conflict there. But from a very young age, I was exposed to Talmud and veneration of Talmud. And so from a, when, I, when I set out at 17 to go to yeshiva in Israel, I did it because most of my friends were doing it. My high school um, typically would send a, a large portion of students to Israel to yeshiva. I spent the first six months in yeshiva in Israel not really enjoying Talmud. I had known how to study Talmud for several years by then but it still didn't make any sense to me. And it was only when I had this epiphany, I had a teacher who showed me the light of a, a very satisfying way of studying the Talmud, that there was a certain aha moment. And the Talmud became not only interesting, but very satisfying intellectually for me. And since then, since around when I was 18 until now, I have spent my life studying Talmud. I have spent years in institutions where I studied it upwards of 10 hours a day. And uh, for the past 12 years, I've been a professor in universities teaching uh, rabbinic literature and Talmud to groups of people who are not necessarily Jewish in lots of different contexts. And uh, I wanted to write the book that, that you see before you somewhere. Um, I wanted to write this book because I felt that um, I have a unique appreciation for what the Talmud is. I've had experiences that allow me to take the internal experience of studying Talmud at its most intense level and translate that for audiences that don't have access to that. Uh, there's a review coming out of my book in the Los Angeles Review of Books by Daniel Boyarin, one of the leading scholars of, of today in rabbinics, where he says that my book gives the reader in English for the first time the chance to actually experience what high-level Talmud study is like for someone who's doing it in the original. 
Um, so there are sections of my book that are very dense, that are very hard to get through, that you have to concentrate and really study because it replicates. I was aiming to introduce and try to explain where some of this comes from while also giving the reader a sense of what it's like to do this. And part of my goal was to not dumb the material down. Right? If, you, if you're writing a physics textbook for, for a general audience, they kind of know that Einsteinian physics is very hard. And even if you try to translate it, there are going to be sections of it that you're really going to have to concentrate in order to be able to follow. That was my goal in writing this book. So my book is, is for a general audience. And I would say that like 80% of it, you'll follow. It's very breezy. There's about 20% of it where you kind of have to put everything away and really dig in. I had the experience, I've been going around the country and speaking about my book. And I was in uh, Washington, DC a few months ago at a synagogue. And these two women came over to me, and they brought out their copies of my book. And there were post-it flags, like in every, every 10 pages. And they had a list of questions for me about. And I was so delighted, because they, they had had a chavruta, where they were studying my book in partnership, you know, as if it was the Talmud. Um, little aside, if you take the jacket cover off, and you just look at the book inside, it says the Talmud, Wimfeimer, which is the closest I'm ever going to come to being the author of the Talmud. Um, so um, without further ado, I want to introduce today um, one aspect of my, um, of my research that comes out in this book in a presentation that I call The Talmud is Icon. Okay, and I'm going I'm to move over here so I'm not in the projector and I have access to the button. Okay. A few weeks ago in a New York Times interview, renowned writer Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple, listed among her current reading list an overtly anti-Semitic book. Some of you are nodding your heads. You, this is not news. Publication of the interview led to widespread condemnation of this book and of Walker's own anti-Semitism. Exhibit A for Walker's anti-Semitism is a poem entitled, It is Our Frightful Duty to Study the Talmud. Much of the Jewish media has referred to this poem as anti-Semitic propaganda that trucks in various forms of very old conspiracies and lies, conspiracy theories and lies. And they're right. I'm not disagreeing with them. But I'm drawn to a very small aspect of this episode. Why does Alice Walker use the Talmud to express her political views? I'm going to begin to answer this question tonight by going back eight centuries to the 13th century. So I'm going to, I'm, we're going to be moving back and forth between the centuries, but I, I hope you'll be able to follow. In 1240, a Franciscan friar named Nicholas Donnan, who had recently converted from Judaism to Christianity, wrote an indictment that raised 35 charges against the Talmud. These charges included a variety of alleged heresies, but the ones that resonated with Pope Gregory IX, the recipient of Donnan's letter, were the ones that asserted that the Babylonian Talmud was an anti-Christian work. Pope Gregory IX responded to Donnan's indictment by encouraging political Christian political authorities in Western Europe to seize the handwritten manuscripts of the Talmud, this is before the age of print, from which 13th century Jews would study, to seize and to destroy them. King Louis IX of France was the only ruler who put Gregory's recommendation into effect. People were sent into Jewish homes on the Sabbath, and manuscripts of the Talmud were seized, collected, and brought under Dominican and Franciscan control. Louis IX then convened a tribunal to hear what was formally termed a disputation between Nicholas Donnan and other Franciscans on one side, and a number of Jewish rabbis, most prominently Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, one of the famous Tosafists whose work appears on the side of the printed edition of the Talmud, um, but a number of other rabbis as well. Though it was formally labeled a disputation, which sounds like a balanced debate, 
This was not a balanced debate in which each side was free to express itself as it would. We know of what transpired from Latin and Hebrew accounts that were produced by the respective sides. After a few days of speeches from the respective sides in the presence of a tribunal that included the Queen Mother Blanche of Castile, the tribunal decided that the Talmud was a heretical work and needed to be su suppressed. Between 20 and 24 cartloads of Talmud manuscripts were burnt in the Place de Grève, the site of high-profile Parisian executions. For some time now, scholars have referred to the Paris Disputation as a trial. Chaim Maccabee has a famous book called The Trial of the Talmud, in which the Talmud was the defendant. In my view, though, not enough attention has been paid to the strangeness of this episode, that the Talmud, a work of literature, was indicted, tried, convicted, and executed. In short, the Talmud was personified and then punished. How should we understand this strange episode in the history of world literature? I believe that a deeper understanding of the 13th century cultural context will shed light on the symbolic register of this episode, will explain why the trial and execution of a book did not seem out of place. The culture of Ashkenaz, the Jewish term for the medieval communities that Jews founded in Northern Europe, particularly in France and Germany, but also in England, can be characterized by a combination of Jewish and Christian physical proximity and a concomitant profound animosity. The villages in this part of the world were often contained within the space of a modern urban square block. And I have to say, the Phoenix blocks are, are huge. The Phoenix block would be like three times the size of the European village. But both the Jews and Christians, who at times intimately cared for one another, also had a visceral antipathy for one another. Visceral is an important term. Carol Walker Bynum has demonstrated the ways in which Christian religious practice was being transformed in the 13th century in the direction of viscera. Cults were emerging around physical relics that proved so appealing to the populace at large, pieces of the bodies of saints, that they could not be contained by church authorities. Consider also the simultaneous rise of ascetic Franciscan orders and the parallel Hasidei Ashkenaz, a Jewish ascetic subgroup. The Franciscans, both of these groups, famously wounded themselves in new and creative ways in order to transcend their bodies. Again, so it's about the bodily and transcending the bodily. This turn to the physical is also evident in the anti-Semitic recurring charges um, that were leveled for the first time in the 13th century. Three different types of charges, accusations of host desecration, ritual murder, and the blood libel began to be employed regularly against Jews and led to executions of individuals or expulsions of whole communities. If we unpack the three recurring charges, we can see something important about the religious symbolics of the day. Host desecration was a charge that Jews needed to steal the host wafer from churches and reenact the passion of the Christ by desecrating Jesus' body embodied in the wafer. Ritual murder was a charge that Jews needed to kill a Christian in order to ritually reenact the murder of Jesus. The blood libel asserted that Jews needed the blood of a Christian in order to produce matzah for Passover. All three of these charges were Christian counter-ritual accusations. In other words, in each case, the Christians imagined a Judaism that worked along the 13th century Christian model of viscera and symbolic personification. To people who took the embodiment of Christ in the Eucharist seriously, it made perfect sense that Judaism would require a similar ritual assumption that would require its adherents to defile the wafer. The blood libel similarly made sense because the imagined requirement of visceral blood made sense to a 13th century Christian mind. 
I'd like to suggest that we understand the symbolic meaning of the burning of the Talmud in light of these cultural realities. The burning of the Talmud is the inverse of these charges. The Jewish text is personified and then is ritually murdered as a symbol of Judaism and contemporary Jews. This symbolic understanding is enhanced by the realization that unlike the heavily iconic medieval Christianity, medieval Ashkenazic Judaism was rigidly symbol-free. Judaism is, according to the Ten Commandments, antagonistic to icons, but throughout Jewish history, the level of Jewish aniconism has been somewhat fluid. If you look in the book of Exodus, there are other icons, like the things on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the things on top of the tabernacle. There are icons in Jewish history. Medieval Ashkenaz, though, is a community that took aniconism seriously. They did not have visual symbols. The Talmud, on the other hand, was a work that this community invested in quite heavily, more than any other contemporaneous Jewish culture. The burning of the Talmud was an extremely effective destruction of a Jewish symbol. It was, I would argue, a passion story in reverse. I open my talk with this 13th century example because it is the first of many episodes in Jewish history in which the Talmud functions as an icon of Judaism, Jewishness or Jews. In my recently published biography of the Talmud, I developed that I, the idea that there are three different registers that, that exist when we speak of the Talmud. I label these registers the, the essential, the enhanced, and the emblematic registers. And I'll, I'll unpack all three of these registers for you. The Talmud is a book, a work of literature produced in a specific time and place and confined to the meaning that emerges from its words. For those of you who don't know, the Talmud is the culmination of a movement known as Rabbinic Judaism, which over a 700-year period, beginning with the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, reimagined Judaism for a diasporic existence. While before the destruction of the temple, the cult of Judaism consisted almost entirely of temple-based sacrifice, after the rabbinic period, Judaism became a text-focused, comprehensive religious ideology with a demanding and rigorous set of mandated behaviors that had nothing to do with sacrifices. The Talmud reads like a rabbinic conversation that lasts several hundred years, with later rabbis interpreting and debating the ideas of their predecessors. Their debates include many layers of nuanced interpretation and many original theological or legal ideas, along with a large collection of stories about the rabbis. The Talmud is famous for the ways in which the rabbis brazenly usurp the religious authority of God tolerate the possibility for true religious and legal pluralism, and resist the impulse to resolve open debates. They leave their conversations unresolved. When we speak of the Talmud's meaning, we often reference the meaning of the Talmud as a book. And that is what I mean by the essential Talmud. So these are some of the features of the essential Talmud. The, it's composed by rabbis. It reads like a conversation. Um, many ideas, usurpation of God's authority. There's the famous story of the oven of Achnai, where, where God tells the rabbis what the law should be, and the rabbis say, sorry, God, we're not interested. We decide, based on our understanding of the Torah, what the law should be, right? So, so the, the Talmud has some really radical ideas about the usurpation of God's authority. It represents pluralism in the idea of multiple rabbis having differences of view, view and unresolved debates. Beyond its meaning as a book, though, the Talmud is significant because it has implicated an almost unparalleled discourse of reception. The Talmud has stood at the center of elite Jewish ideological conversation for the last millennium. That's a long period of time. For a thousand years, more than a thousand years, during that time, many different literatures of reception, responsa, law codes, commentaries, 
homilies, even mystical tracts, have expanded the meaning of the Talmud in the Jewish tradition. When traditional Jews invoke the Talmud, they often are referencing this discourse rather than the ideas found in the book itself. So you have your essential Talmud, which is just the ideas found in the book itself, but for many traditional Jews, the Talmud includes all of the literatures of reception. The symbolic register is interrelated with the Talmud's meaning as both book and discourse. It was, after all, I'm not saying that the content of the Talmud is not relevant for the symbolic register, but the symbolic register is a powerful thing all on its own. It was, after all, the anti-Christian content of the book that drew the ire of Nicholas Donnan and Pope Gregory IX. The discourse is also very present within the Jewish defense of the Talmud at the disputation, but in my opinion, the most significant meaning of the Talmud's trial is the symbolism of the trial, conviction, and execution, rather than the content deliberations, which are not really all that interesting. In my ensuing remarks, I will move rapidly from the 13th century to the present and make an argument about the iconization of the Talmud, how the Talmud come, becomes the icon of Judaism. The story I'm about to tell is the story of how the Talmud acquired a fixed and rigid body, and how that body is becoming a religious icon and inspiring new modes of religious interaction with the text. I'll also come back at the end and revisit Alice Walker, which is very much in line with a lot of these things. I'll start the story back in the first century at the dawn of the rabbinic movement. The rabbis produced all of their literature orally. This fact is undisputed. No one disagrees that the rabbis produce all of their literature orally, but shocking. Rabbinic literature includes many different works, the Talmud being the largest and most impressive. The Talmud dwarfs the Bible in size. It's like three times the size of the Bible. The rabbis operated within a culture that was relatively literate and regularly produced the Hebrew Bible as a written canon on parchment scroll. So they had the technology to write. Despite the availability of writing as a technology, the rabbis did not avail themselves of the scroll or the book. Books had already started existing. Rather, they pridefully described their own literature as the oral Torah and insisted that it remain untranscribed. The Talmud would circulate and be studied orally until the 9th century when some began to write it down. We know this from a 9th century text in which one scholar badmouths a neighboring school because they have begun to study the Talmud from a written text. Some of the early transcriptions of the Talmud were produced on parchment scrolls similar to the ones on which Jews from antiquity until today write their Torah. So the early 8th century, 9th century writings of the Talmud would have been on scrolls. But by the 9th century, the more popular and better technology was the Codex, a bound paper book that was designed for scribal handwriting. Imagine something like a diary that you write in that is bound and then you, you write by hand. From the 9th to the 15th centuries, the Talmud was copied in part or whole by professional scribes and non-professional learners alike all over the Jewish world. As with any text, ancient text, that survived the vicissitudes of, of uh, transcription, the Talmud has some degree of variance between and among its different manuscripts. Medieval commentators were hyper-aware of this variance. People like Rashi or Nachmanides will always start and say, in my version of the text, it says this and often employed a real or a hypothetical variant as a means of resolving logical or conceptual shortcomings in the text. With the dawn of print in the 15th century, the Talmud began to be printed. The earliest printings were of popular individual tractates in 15th century Spain, Portugal, and Fez. You have to bear in mind always with print that there's economic factors. So you're gonna print the tractates that people wanna buy. 
So the ones that everyone is learning, you'll print lots of copies of. And many of the tractates that are never learned just don't get printed in the early period. The expulsion of the Jews of Iberia in 1492 and 1497 shifted the locus of Jewish printing to Italy, where the Sansino family of printers published some important first editions in the late 15th and early 16th centuries. Between 1520 and 1523, Daniel Bomberg, a Christian printer originally from Antwerp, produced a deluxe and complete edition of the Babylonian Talmud. Someone just reached out to me last week to talk to me about when are we going to put together a special conference marking the 500th anniversary of this edition. So I'm sure that's coming because it's right around the corner. This edition established the pagination of the Talmud. Forever after, references to the Talmud include citations to a page number and a folio, side A or side B. If you trace the development of the Talmud, of Talmudic printing from the 1520s to the 1820s, and I did this by like going to every library in North America that has Talmud collections and looking at all the print editions, you discover the not so surprising facts that the Talmud was printed fairly often, and that each new edition attempts to add features that improve upon prior editions. These features are aesthetic, better paper, better fonts, cleaner lines, intellectual, new commentaries, or practical new layouts, or new apparatus for cross-references. By the time you get to the Amsterdam edition of the Proops Press in the late 18th century, so in the 1780s, you find most of the features of the Talmud <laughs> editions employed today. In fact, if I brought you a Proops Talmud, any of you who've seen a standard Vilna edition of Talmud would think I was giving you the standard Talmud. You would, it would be, you would be hard pressed to identify the differences. At the end of the 19th century, one edition, published in the 1880s, came to not just dominate but to somewhat monopolize the market. The Vilna Shas of the 1880s was produced by the Widow and Brothers Ram Press and drew upon two earlier 19th century Ram Talmuds. The 1820s Ram Talmud, which by today's standards actually plagiarized an early edition from a rival press called the Slavuta Press, introduced, so the 1820s edition introduced a beautiful new central font that moves Hebrew from the calligraphic look of Torah writing into a modern print era. Most of you look like you're my age or maybe even a little older. Um, if you are, you probably learned to read Hebrew from primers that use the Vilna font as the basic Hebrew text. That font was invented for the 1820s Talmud by the Ram Shas, and over the course of the 19th century came to be one of the standard fonts that was then stolen by various other print houses. Um, but the 1850s Ram Talmud reproduced the look of the earlier edition without changing it much. They just redid it. They didn't have the ability to just photo offset yet, so they had to actually typeset the whole thing again. The 1880s Ram Talmud, the, the one that has become famous, provided the reader with a third tier of commentary on the Talmudic page that had either never before been published or were hard to come by. So one of the innovations of this edition is they consistently add this third tier Right, so there, there was already these, this tier and this tier and this tier was in earlier editions, but this additional commentary is, uh, and the fact that there would consistently be one on every page was one of the innovations of the 1880s Vilna edition. Um, though the stereotype technology that Ram employed in producing the Talmud could have enabled them to compete with other presses on price. They could have made their Talmuds cheaper because they now had stereotype technology which allowed them to create a plate to permanently have the plate so that they could run off as many as they needed. 
Rahm chose instead to create something of a luxury Talmud, producing a more impressive work, but also one that costs as much as five times what rival presses charge. It's kind of like the Apple move, like you don't actually compete on price. Um, the strategy was effective. Publication of the Ram Shas put several competing Talmud printers out of business. And the stereotyping technologies allowed Ram to print the work almost on demand. Where the 1820s and 1850s editions had sold out, now the Ram could print new copies when their stock was low. This ensured that the Ram Shas was always available. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, Ram still had competitors, but was recognized as a deluxe edition and the one people aspired to purchase when they bought a complete set. World War I further augmented this monopoly. The occupation of Vilna led to rumors in World War I, led to rumors that the Ram Press had been destroyed. This encouraged both American and British printers to employ new photo offset technology to reproduce the Ram edition in both London and New York without paying the copyright holders. Though the Ram Press would emerge and reassert its copyright after the war, some of the damage was already done. Now what was bad for the Ram's business was good for the rise of the Ram edition as the default edition of the Talmud in the 20th century. When after World War II, the United States Army decided to repurpose a Nazi printing house and paper and print an edition, the Armed Forces edition of the Talmud, they employed photo offset technology to reproduce the Ram edition that they would got from, their, from New York. And this is how by the end of World War II, the Ram edition had become the Talmud's modern body. A work that had once been oral and had survived the half-millennium period of handwritten transcription invariants that had been printed in over a hundred editions was now associated with a single print edition. The full ramifications of Rahm's monopoly would materialize in the context of two translation projects in the second half of the 20th century. Beginning in the late 1960s, the prominent public intellectual Adin Steinsaltz began to produce an Israeli edition of the Talmud that vocalized the text so it vocalizes the text, it gives, puts nikudot in, and offered a paraphrastic translation from the Hebrew-Aramaic hybrid language into modern Hebrew, in this spot over here. The Scheinzaltz edition also incorporated some scientific data, particularly about flora and fauna and those tractates that are interested in those kinds of things, where appropriate. Steinzeltz edition maintained the general look of a Talmudic page with central text surrounded by commentary, but did it, it did not adhere to the pagination established by the 16th century Bomberg edition. It moved Rashi from the inside of the page to the outside of the page to make room for the translation. And um, it replaced the Rashi typeface commonly used for Talmudic commentary since the 16th century with various modern type, this is, these are, this is various versions of Frank Rule, a modern Israeli form of type. And it moved the Tosafists out of their usual position because it had to move Rashi over, it brought the Tosafists down here. The Steinzel's edition was popular with Israeli non-religious learners and in the United States with those non-Orthodox Jews who studied the Talmud, mostly in rabbinical schools. It was decidedly unpopular with Orthodox Jews in both the United States and Israel, and it developed a harsh response for the ultra-Orthodox. For the ultra-Orthodox, Scheinzel's edition was seen as an assault on a tradition embodied by the Vilna Shas. Whether the objection was phrased as a, <clears throat> as a problem with Scheinzel's placement of his own translation in the place of Rashi, or the newfangled pagination, in retrospect, 
this was a debate about the Talmud as a symbol. And some of the issue had to do with the problem of transforming the Talmud's visual image. For traditional Jews, the Talmud had come to have one physical form, the Vilna Shas. And any attempt to alter that form, however much this would be an improvement, was an offense to tradition. In the early 1990s, the Art Scroll Press, an ultra-Orthodox press in New York that already had 20 years of success marrying a gift for aesthetics, and I think this is, by the way, not fully appreciated. Art Scroll really knows how to make books beautiful. Aesthe for marrying aesthetics with translated orthodoxy began to publish its own translation of the Talmud. Keyed into the ultra-Orthodox world and well familiar with the Steinsaltz politics, the Art Scroll folks resolved the tension over symbolics in a curious way. Art Scroll produced its own vocalization and English translation of the Talmud, coupled with selected nuggets translated from the millennia of, of Talmud commentaries. But instead of repaginating the Talmud, Art Scroll published its translation in a facing page edition, where the translation always faces the traditional Vilna page it translates. I'll just mention an aside. So, so in the Art Scroll edition, they have vocalization of the Hebrew Aramaic here, and they have translation, and then they have notes which give you distillations of the commentaries, but you still get to see the 1880s Vilna page on every page. Now, a little aside, um, Art Scroll has secretly been changing the Vilna side, but they've been doing it in between editions in very subtle, not so noticeable ways, so no one gets upset at them. So the original translations from the early Art Scroll translation is actually Vilna. They have now replaced it with laser printed improvements of Vilna that look a lot like Vilna, but are not actually identical. But you have to be really sensitive to this to notice. And they're starting to add things. There's like a little creek that's adding into there. It's fascinating. I'll have to do some follow-up work on this. Now, <clears throat> yeah. Their translations are coming from the Vilna. They're not, 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 they don't do any manuscript work, so they're not looking at manuscripts or other early printed editions. They just take the Vilna text as the text of the Talmud. Um, now, Art Scroll was not the first to come up with this idea of the facing pages. The Sansino Talmud, a British translation of the Talmud into English, had produced a facing page edition in the early 70s. The problem with this edition and the problem facing the Art Scroll editors was that the Talmud is so complex and its language so dense that it is a major challenge to fit the English on the facing side. The Sansino edition solved this problem by having each translation page inelegantly continued on a new page in the back of the volume in an appendix to the book. <clears throat> So kind of like if you've ever read the New York Times Magazine and the articles go to the back, that's what the Sansino did. Uh, it makes the edition pretty hard to use. Art Scroll came up with their own solution. Instead of trying to fit the translation to a single page, they reproduced the Vilna page as many times as it's necessary for the translation side. Each Vilna page then gets reproduced between, reproduced between three and six, and some tractates even eight times, so that the reader is always able to read the English opposite the Vilna page it translates. This environmentally disastrous solution, which unnecessarily reprints the same page multiple times, turned out to be genius. The Art Scroll edition has created a market for translated Talmud that has never been seen before. Some of its volumes have sold upwards of a million copies. The success of Art Scroll has inspired an imitation. New translations, um, new, transla new Steinsaltz translations in both Hebrew and English now incorporate the Vilna image as well. 
An academic commentary series produced by the Society for the Interpretation of the Talmud incorporates the policy of reprinting, the facing, fill in the page, even the Barilan Responsa database, the earliest and best electronic digital text database, which offers all of its books in digital text format, has one exception to the rule. When you work on the Talmud, you can choose to see digital text or the image of the Vilna page. Now, so that's, it's fascinating what the Vilna page has become. Now, before I offer some analysis of the symbolic rise of the Vilna Talmud in contemporary Jewish life, I need to highlight some other changes in the Talmud's function as a re religious text in today's Judaism. In 2012, 600,000 people packed stadia and arenas worldwide to celebrate the end of a Dafyomi cycle. Dafyomi is a program through which participants study one double-sided page of Talmud per day, every day. It takes about seven and a half years for people to finish the Talmud this way. Dafyomi was once an obscure phenomenon that in interested a very small cadre of elite scholars. People who did it were former or current yeshiva students with tremendous reading fluency in the text. Today, Dafyomi has become universalized as a lay learning project. In the United States, nearly every metropolitan Orthodox synagogue that offers daily prayer services also offers Dafyomi classes. There are Dafyomi classes on the Long Island Railroad and on the internet. There has been tremendous symbiosis in the relationship between Dafyomi and the Art Scroll Talmud. This explosion would not have been possible without the Art Scroll Talmud. Now, for those of you who have not studied the Talmud, let me note that the Talmud is hard and that the pace of two sides of Talmud a day is difficult, if not impossible, for many, if not most, of the participants in Dafyomi. So when we evaluate Dafyomi as a phenomenon, we need to be a little suspicious of it purely as an intellectual or educational activity. Like many religious communal activities, Dafyomi has significant social value. It creates a daily bonding exercise for its participants who are fellow travelers on the seven and a half year journey. In some places, Dafyomi classes are a cross between educational exercises and ritual activities. I know of some Dafyomi lecturers with the reputation of finishing the daf in 30 minutes or less. These lectures amount to something akin to a ritual recitation of the text, which is kind of like what Jews have done with Psalms for many years, where they just read these by rote and they don't really understand what they're saying. Jews have seen this movie before. The Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, were first read to the public in the Second Temple as an educational program. Even in the rabbinic period, there was simultaneous translation into Aramaic to make the Torah's content digestible to the synagogue crowd. Today, though, Torah reading is 99% ritual and 1% educational. In many places in the world, the congregation does not understand the language of the Torah, and in those places in which they do, they often do not attend to the meaning of, of a text recited musically and often quickly. So even in Israel, where they all know the language, they're not listening to the words. The Talmud in modernity is currently, in my opinion, undergoing a process of ritualization through Dafyomi. Further evidence of this comes in the form of weekly study sheets for kids called Dafyomi for Kids that are now distributed in Israel alongside ubiquitous examples of such sheets that relate to the weekly Torah portion. So if you go into any synagogue in Jerusalem, you're bombarded with leaflets. Most of these leaflets are, are someone's sermons for the weekly Torah portion, but increasingly there's also Dafyomi stuff, including Dafyomi for kids. Now why would a child need to know what was going on in Dafyomi for that day? Because Dafyomi, um, like the Torah reading, Dafyomi has become a communal calendar. Just as the Jewish community collectively reenacts the Bible and its narrative through Torah reading, it enacts the Talmud through Dafyomi. The children's Dafyomi sheets makes it possible, make it possible for a child to keep up with a parent's Dafyomi studies by knowing that this week, for example, 
issues of divorce law were covered. Why a child should have to know that we don't know, but it's, it's not so different from a child having to know that like this week in Leviticus, we covered certain sacrifices. I have to add to this. Two weeks ago, my brother who lives in Israel attended something that I had never heard of before, but it demonstrates yet a further ritualization of the Talmud. He attended a one-day completion of the Talmud. So this was in a yeshiva. He was invited to participate with, with hundreds of other people in a project where they were collectively going to study the entire Talmud in a single day. Now, again, the, the educational value of this is very limited. And right, it, it just means that people are going to be re reading eight random pages or 15 random pages or 30 random pages of Talmud from tractates that they've never seen before just so that they could collectively say, we finished the Talmud. But there's something about the magnitude and the depth and the size of the Talmud that is encouraging these new forms of ritualization. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. We return now to discuss the Talmud's fixed physical form, the Vilna edition. It's fair to point out, as I did earlier, that the Ram edition was already quite popular in the 19th century for strong substantive reasons. The quality of the paper, new commentaries, its reputation for luxury. It's also good to remember that the timing of photo offset technology and World War I also cemented this do dominance. Even with these factors, I'd like to offer other analysis of the rise of the Vilna image and its religious role today. One of the most important distinctions that scholars of religion make is the distinction between traditional and traditionalist practices. The emancipation of the Jews in modernity created an individual autonomy that had not previously existed. A 15th century Jew had no choice but to live within the religious community and abide by its traditional structures or practices, or at least look like they were abiding. Jews in modernity have a choice, even within the most deeply traditional communities. This fundamentally important fact leads to traditionalism, which is an attempt to assert tradition in the face of modernity. Dafyomi is a traditionalist ritual that affords the autonomous modern Jew the opportunity to engage a traditionally significant text. It is a decidedly modern phenomenon because even at the height of the Talmud's import in 19th century Eastern Europe, only a very small percentage of the male Jewish population would have been able to do it. Maybe 3%? When Dafyomi was first initiated in the early 20th century, only the yeshiva educated could do it. Today's universal education practices and the printing of translations like art scrolls have enabled the modern production of a traditionalist ritual. The distinction between traditional and traditionalist has something to say about religious performance. So the anthropologist, uh, sociologist Irving Goffin famously developed the idea of personal identity in general as performance. Someone living in a traditional Jewish community in the 15th century would thus have been engaged in Goffman's sense in religious performances. But we can distinguish between traditional and traditionalist practices by noting that traditionalist practices are out of step with the performances of the larger culture and thus more visible. Traditionalism masks change in the face of changing realities. Consider the ultra-Orthodox decision to cover women's hair or for the men to wear black frocks and hats, including some fur-lined ones in Phoenix. These practices are not that out of step in cold Eastern Europe. Well, when someone's wearing a strimal on an 80-degree day in Israel, the religious performance as a performance becomes much more visible. One thing that develops under these conditions is that the integrity of the performance becomes that much more important for the practitioner who understands the behavior as a performance. So to do dafyomi, I'm arguing, one has to be able to see oneself as a traditional learner. And a traditional learner uses a vilnashas. 
Together with religious traditionalism, there is a strong role for nostalgia to play in the current fetishization of the image of the Talmud. In this post-Holocaust Jewish world, there is considerable nostalgia for the vanished, lost world of Eastern Europe. Think about Roman Vizniak photos, many of which we now know have, were, were doctored or altered or not really true to the time. Much of this nostalgia overwhelms the historical realities of Eastern Europe before World War II and projects an imagined universal shtetl life in which the Talmud, visualized as the Vilna edition, played an unchallenged role. The Vilna provenance of the Ram edition makes it easier to think of the Talmud as a time machine, allowing the learner to use its portal to travel to the yeshivas of Slobodka or Volozhin. Finally, let me return to the Art Scroll Talmud and note the brilliance of its facing page apparatus. The Art Scroll Talmud's English translation is very easy to understand. In fact, I'd argue that it's too easy. The Talmud is hard, even for specialists like myself, which is why it makes very little sense as a lay text. Art Scroll has fixed the problem by making it easy. Of course, in order to do this, it has incorporated commentary into the translation and eliminated some of the things that make the essential Talmud so interesting and help explain where the enhanced Talmud comes from. The reason why people have been studying this text for a thousand years is it's confusing, contradictory, and it's logically complicated. But Art School takes most of that out by incorporating commentary into its translation. The problem with simplicity is that it undermines gravitas. If the Talmud is easily understood, how is the learner to comprehend its depth? and why the special skill of studying this text has long granted certain figures, rabbis, communal authority. The facing Vilna page is a brilliant and effective way of perpetually reminding the reader that the Talmud is actually hard, but is being made easy. There have recently been some outstanding works of art that employ the Vilna page image of the Talmud. So one of them, if you see my book over here, the cover of my book um, is uh, taken from an artwork by a woman named um, Andy Arnovitz, who's actually originally from Kansas City and now lives in Jerusalem. It's called If They Only Asked Us, and it's explicitly a feminist critique of the Talmud. <coughs> she, um, if you look at it more closely, you'll be able to see it in great detail. What she did was she took um, Japanese, very thin Japanese paper, and she printed it out, and then she rolled it up. She cut it into small pieces, rolled it up, and sewed it together so it actually, on the, on the jacket of the book, you can see that what it actually looks like. It looks like Joseph's multicolored dream coat, but it's a, it's a garment made out of Talmud, but it's a rainbow garment, and it's, it's called If They Only Asked Us, and it's a reminder that the Talmud was produced by men for men in an environment in which certain voices, particularly the voices of women, were not welcome. So... Um, what, I, what I, I, I lead up to this artwork in the book itself, and I talk about this artwork, so I'm not going to talk about it tonight. I'm going to talk about a different artwork. Um, this artwork is only possible because the Talmud has been reduced to a specific image, the Vilna edition. Once you have a specific symbolization, you have a concrete, everyone can recognize this is the Talmud, then you can start making crit critical art. So this is, this is a similar, this is another work of feminist critical art of the Talmud. It is uh, Nechama Golan's work called You Shall Walk in Good Ways. Time doesn't permit me to fully unpack all the rich things that are going on in this work. Suffice it to say that this artwork is a feminist critique of tradition that employs the Vilna image as the default image of tradition, which is one of the ways that the Talmud has symbolized Judaism for a long time. The Talmud is the symbol of tradition. By now, this move should not come as a surprise. What I've attempted to show is that for hundreds of years, the Talmud has functioned as a Jewish symbol, and some of its meaning has taken place within the symbolic register. What has happened uniquely in modernity is that the Talmud has acquired a formal body, 
a symbolic representation that allows the Talmud to work as an icon and has prompted new religious practices and modes of engagement. This iconic status is only beginning to be tapped into in the world of contemporary art. By the way, I have my own ideas for artwork that I think will sell like hotcakes based on this insight of mine. I actually think like, I, I think I've understood the market and I think I can figure out a way to sell this, but I'm not an artist, so I don't know how to do it. So I'm, I'm, I have an idea. But Golan's shoe is the Talmud as Cinderella's slipper. The passage that appears on the shoe is one in which a woman, Ha'isha, is the grammatical subject, but the legal object. The framed word Ha'isha, meaning the woman, celebrates this grammatical subject, but the content of the sentence, how a woman is acquired in marriage, denigrates her. The Talmud on the shoe is made aesthetic, I, I think the shoe is gorgeous, and sexualized. The shoe forces the viewer to think about female fashion and the male gaze, about female sexual agency as a passive, aggressive, come-hither invitation to male sexual control. By marrying the Talmud, produced and consumed historically by men with the female shoe, Golan introduces gender expectations and the relationship between gender and tradition into the conversation. This is yet another way in which the Talmud's realization of an iconic form has created new religious opportunities in modernity. While the existence of a symbolic register is not new, I hope that I've demonstrated that the Talmud's highly visual symbolics are a recent and rapidly changing contemporary phenomenon. To return to Alice Walker, the content of Walker's poem that highlights a few scattered passages of the Talmud that are antisocial are the same materials that have been highlighted to make the same point since the 13th century. As Jews, and I think this is an important thing to say, it is important to own these problematic texts as our own and as problematic, to contextualize them and to apologize for them as Jews have been doing since the dawn of modernity. Since the 18th century, Jews have been very outspoken about the fact that the Talmud has occasional things that don't really fit with our modern sensibilities. At the same time, it should be clear that this discussion about the Talmud takes place entirely in the emblematic register, a discourse in which people make political points using the Talmud as a symbol. The essential and enhanced registers of the Talmud, those registers that have occupied some of the greatest Jewish minds for a millennium, have little overlap with the content critique of those who would claim that the Talmud is immoral. I'll close with one more difference that I'd like to suggest, and I'd love to hear your feedback. The difference between Nechama Golan's critique and Alice Walker's critique is that Golan's critique brings the true content of the essential and enhanced Talmud into the emblematic register in order to make a political statement about the Talmud's fraught relationship with women. And so does Andy Arnovitz's piece. Walker's piece, by contrast, has nothing to do with the serious intellectual project of the Talmud. And that is what I will close with. Thank you. Yeah. Can you explain briefly what that printing process was, uh, how it works uh, as a technology? Uh, uh, because we go from a manuscript, and so, uh, you know, you described the burning of, a, of manuscripts. Now, manuscripts uh, were uh, rare, uh, expensive, both what they were printed on and the fact that it ha everyone had to be done by hand. You know, we think of a book as, you know, easily we fill libraries with them, but if you burned uh, something uh, such as uh, a, a, a Talmud, uh, you took away something very significant because there weren't very many of these things around. Now you go to, uh, uh, you, you moved on to printing, and, uh, and then you uh, referred to another process uh, uh, by which 
stereotype. You, you didn't yeah. have to set individual pieces of type. What was that process, and and has it worked? So um, to repeat the question. Can I paraphrase? Sure. It, te technology has evolved as the Talmud has evolved. So can you speak to that? Okay. So. Um, technology has evolved as the Talmud has evolved, so I'm, I'm being asked to speak to that and specifically to um, give a little bit more detail about the, the, the specifics of the technology. So, um, believe it or not, the codex was itself a technological innovation. Right. The thing that was the basis for the codex, that was the big technological innovation, was the idea that you could take a big piece of paper and fold it and create choirs, which are like eight-page little booklets. And then you could sew those together, and you'd have a book. Even today, if you open up books, that's still the way they're made. They were made with like smaller little leaflets that are then sewed together or glued together. Um, when, you, when, you got to, um, when you got to the early print, you're, this is the age of movable type. So, and what, what this would mean is you, you'd, have, you'd have like a frame, a frame and on the frame, you could lay out the text. And then you, you, would, um, you would literally roll off the text from that metal frame. The, the problem was that they only, had a little, they only had like one frame or maybe two frames. And so the second you moved on to page two or page three, you didn't have page one anymore because you, you needed the same equipment to make it. So you had, you had to decide going in how many, how many print copies you were going to produce. So the original Bomberg, one of the reasons why it's so valuable, one of them uh, sold for a couple million dollars uh, a year or two ago. One of the reasons why they're so valuable is the original print run was very limited. It was done on very expensive paper. It was, it was also something of a luxury edition, but I think maybe 100 copies were printed, the full set. So it's, it's just, um, originally that's how, that's how printing was done. Up until, up until the 18th century, that was kind of the way, the model. And then, and then stereotype technology starts to come in. And that allows, with stereotype technology, you're able to now um, turn, the, turn the metal into rubber or some kind of, uh, kind of rubber-like thing, plastic or rubber. And then using the plastic or rubber, you can then imprint that on another piece of metal, usually lead, because it was cheap. And then you could keep the lead around so that next time you needed to run something off, you could just run off the, 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 the pages from the lead. And then in the 19-teens, they developed photo offset technology where you didn't even need to make a lead version. You could just literally copy using camera technology. You could copy from the original thing you were copying and print out in something new. And that's what we know what our copiers use. Um, so, um, those are the major changes that have happened over time, and um, one of the things that, that I, I, I think I said is that the, Vil the Vilna Shas puts out of business, um, it puts out of business a number of the contemporary printers in Central Europe and also um, you know, mostly in Central Europe, and those printers sold their lead plates to ROM for the cost of the lead, because ROM just... They melted it down into the lead and they reused it because they, did, they didn't need those, those prints anymore. Um, and they, weren't, they didn't have any value because no one wanted to publish those books anymore. Um, so so this, this is part of the story of, uh, now one of the other pieces, uh, I, I want to go on a scavenger hunt. If anyone's going to Vilnius, 
there needs to be a scavenger hunt. Because one, one of the people who was involved in the Ram Press, who wrote most of what we know about the Ram Press, writes that as World War I was approaching, they buried the plates outside Vilnius. And he never reports that they dug them up. And I have no evidence that after World War I, anyone ran anything off of those plates. That would be a huge discovery if you could actually discover the original Vilna plates. I think that would be very exciting. Um, so someone's got to go to Vilnius with maybe some satellite metal detector uh, to be able to, to, to figure out where they hid these things. Yeah. Yes? I'm still kind of curious, going back a little bit, the thousand years before the Vilna. Yeah. Has anyone done to see how much change has creeped in? Have they done the manuscript and compared? I mean, is, and, and yet the Vilna is, is accepted almost as the official now, right? So the question was, the thousand years before Vilna, has anyone done the work to see how the text changed over the course of time? Has anyone done it? Many people have done it. It's actually um, um, lower criticism or textual criticism of the Talmud is its own sub-cottage industry. And I, I like to tell the story, though, of the, of the person who really deserves a lot of credit. There was a man named Rafal Nasanata Rabinovich, who was a, um, a Lithuanian Jew, who was kind of, um, a, I would say he's a second-tier intellectual, but lover of books. He was a big bibliophile. And he learns that there's a manuscript in Munich, in, in a library there, the State Library in Munich had a manuscript of the entire Talmud. In fact, this manuscript, Munich 95, remains the only manuscript that exists in the world that is a full, complete manuscript of the entire Babylonian Talmud. Um, 14th century. So, um, and part of the reason for that is most of our manuscripts, uh, the Talmud, because it was a work that people studied, a lot of the manuscripts we have were probably copied that people copied for their own use. And they would only copy you know, two or three tractates at a time because they weren't going to copy the whole thing. The, one that, the Munich one is beautiful because it was done by a professional calligrapher scribe. Um, it's different from most manuscripts. But um, Rabinovich traveled to Munich and basically spent his, most of his adult life living in Munich so that he could do the project that you're asking about. He spent his time traveling throughout the libraries of Western Europe, collecting every reference to a Talmud text that he could find. So he was looking at all the manuscripts, all the printed editions, and also all the commentaries and their manuscripts and printed editions. And then he created a uh, set of volumes called Dictuque Sofrim that, that were published in the 1880s. Um, he published 15 volumes before his death, and then the 16th was published um, uh, posthumously um, by the chief rabbi of Munich. And uh, those works are still valuable to this day, but nowadays we have different, completely different tools for dealing with these issues. The um, Society for the Interpretation of the Talmud and the Saul Lieberman Institute have digitized every, every handwritten manuscript and every print edition that, that gives us an original um, read has been digitized and is now available in electronic databases that allow us to, to search. And some of them allow you to instantly create a synopsis where you can look up any passage and immediately see the five different slight variations in wording in that passage. So nowadays, we have all kinds of tools. Now, now, not only can you see the digital text, but if you click on the digital text, you can get a, a page image of the original manuscript page of that. So there is a lot of work that goes into this. But um, in traditional circles, most of, most of the time in traditional circles, this work is considered verboten. Um, so in, in, in traditional yeshivas, there isn't a lot of attention paid to this variety. 
though that is beginning to change. I actually have an article that I'm working on about a recent phenomenon where ultra-Orthodox um, ultra-Orthodox intellectuals are trying to reclaim this scholar, Rafal Rabinovich, as an Eastern European gadol, as a great man who can be venerated as like a classically trained, brilliant Talmudist, even though for the last 50 years, ultra-Orthodox Jews have claimed he was a critic and therefore was modern and they needed to run away from him. Now they're trying to reclaim him as someone who's one of them because he was from Eastern Europe and he was interested in text. Um, so it's fascinating, actually, that these things are, are changing. Yeah. The book, uh, two questions. You spoke about how orthodoxy has kind of um, chosen a certain time period, uh, 17th, 18th century, as locking in. Can you speak to why they chose that time period? And then the second question is, um, you spoke about different languages that have been used by the Jews throughout history. If you could just paraphrase that. Okay, so the first question was about um, the 17th to 18th century and why that became fixed um, in certain particularly ultra-Orthodox circles. Um, and the other question was about Jewish languages. Um, from Egypt till today. From Egypt till today. <laughs> so um, on, on the first one, on uh, Orthodoxy, the, the, the German-Israeli scholar, Jacob Katz, who's a major historian of uh, Jewish history, um, famously pointed out that orthodoxy is not a continuation of tradition. It is a modern phenomenon. It comes about as a response to reform. So reform starts in the 18-teens, and orthodoxy emerges as a response to that. So orthodoxy is a 19th century and 20th century phenomenon, and ultra-orthodoxy <clears throat> gets going in the 1830s. So if you want to know why, why did the... Why did the 18th century become fixed as the time period that they were focused on? Well, because from the 1830s, what was old was from around 1800. So their, their view was, we're going we're gonna to preserve everything. It's like, imagine like if, if we in the United States, John F. Kennedy was the first president who didn't wear a hat to inauguration, right? But people still remember that. So maybe people nowadays would be like, if I wanted to be conservative, I'll go back to wearing a hat. Yeah. The Industrial Revolution and and, I mean, and Judaism. And yeah. Judaism. Yeah. Well, the printing process, for example. But it's locked it in. These are all excellent points. Your other points about Jewish language. Um, everywhere Jews have lived, pretty much everywhere the Jews have lived, they've created a Jewish version of the language that was spoken. So in addition to the ones that are commonly known, like Yiddish and Ladino, Yiddish is just a form of German um, that is fixed in time. Like, it is a form of German. Grammatically, it's like 11th century German. But the Jews left, they left Germany and, and they moved eastward to Eastern Europe and they kept some of their language, but their language didn't evolve the same way that German evolved. So it's 11th, 12th century German that combines with Hebrew and Aramaic phrases from the Talmud. Um, Right, so and there's that. Ladino is a similar phenomenon, Jews leaving Iberia and retaining Latin languages from Iberia and incorporating alongside that. Um, there's a little bit of Arabic in Ladino. There's a little bit of Greek in Ladino. There's also um, Hebrew 
and, and references to rabbinic literature. Um, but like Jews in Germany produced Yiddish Deutsch, which was German written in Jewish characters. Um, Judeo-Arabic is a, was a well-known phenomenon. Maimonides wrote many of his works in Judeo-Arabic. So did Sadia Gaon. So Jews produced hybrid languages of various kinds. Um, the Talmud is written in a, in a kind of pidgin. It's, a, it's, it's something called traditionally Lush and Kodesh. It's a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic, um, which are related languages and similar enough. And many readers read the Talmud without realizing that they're going back and forth between languages. But the Talmud is actually written in two languages. Yeah. Okay, I have lots of questions, but I'll okay. start with one. Um, so at Valley Beat Midrash, we pride ourselves on pluralism, <coughs> religious pluralism, political pluralism, that we want to, amidst our differences, have space to learn together, right? So we oftentimes point to the Talmud as modeling that type of discourse. Now, I've learned enough Talmud, but not enough. enough but enough Talmud to know that that's too rosy of a picture. Um, tolerance and pluralism. So I wonder if you can point to us one of the best models of pluralism and tolerance that emerges from the Talmud, either in content or in methodology, and one of the worst that actually would demonstrate that actually those values were not as ubiquitous and pervasive as we might think. So the question is, uh, the Talmud is often held out as a model of pluralism. Um, I've been asked for examples of uh, something that would kind of debunk that and something that would kind of promote it, I guess. Um, so one of the things, I, I think when I, first, when I first got into the field, I was really highly motivated to debunk the idea that the Talmud is this pluralistic document. And I think I was motivated, it was kind of like a countercultural move because it's so commonly held that the Talmud is, is pluralistic. I wanted to be able to say, well, and so um, in my first book, Narrating the Law, one of the things I do is I talk about um, the way that the rabbis who produce the Talmud talk about a group of Jews who are living within their community who are not educated in the same way they are. And they collectively refer to these people as the Amei Haaretz. Um, now, this term Am Haaretz, which is sometimes translated as ignoramus, is... Uh, is a, is a very slippery term because it actually means different things in different time periods. And it, 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 it comes to mean something in Yiddish and modern Hebrew, it just means ignoramus. But in the ancient world, in the Second Temple period, it actually had a specific meaning related to purity's laws. But for the rabbis in rabbinic literature, the Am Haaretz is the Jewish other. It's the Jew who isn't part of their program. And the rabbis can be pretty harsh about the Amharats. The rabbis have some really, they, you know, I guess this is my tie into your earlier remark about Olam Haba, right? So, like, the question is, is the Amharats going, getting an afterlife of Olam Haba? Like, there are sections of the Talmud where the rabbis have really horrible things to say about what, what is in store for the Amharats. So the Amharats is in some ways like the antagonist of the rabbis, and because of that, you have to think, and because we know that the rabbis as a group, during their own period, we're actually only a small minority of the Jews of their day. Because they left behind this vast literature, and because we don't have anything from anyone else, they end up speaking very loudly, and they, their history becomes the history of the Jews of their period. But the more we look at it, the more we realize that they probably were only a very small percentage of the Jews at the time. And it's actually only in the 8th through 10th centuries that their vision for Judaism comes to really be the world, worldwide proje project. But um, so in their own day, they're a small minority group. 
And there are other Jews around them, and they don't have much tolerance for those other Jews. The other example I would say is the other people that we know in the story, because the rabbis tell, them, tell us about them, is that the rabbis will talk about the Reish Galuta, the Exilarch. So in Babylonia, they had a official Judean head of community that reported to the Sasanian Persian king that was running Babylonia. Um, the Reish Galuta, the Exilarch, was the Jewish representative. And there are times when the Reish Galuta is very close to the rabbinic community, almost a member of the rabbinic community, and they get along great. But there are times when there's a lot of friction. And so the rabbis will say lots of really nasty things about the Exilarch. So there are times in which it's pretty clear that the model of pluralism that the rabbis hold out is really a model that only extends to the walls of their own study hall to people who are involved in their own project. Um, that being said, that being said, um, over the years I have gone back to revisiting this question of pluralism because I think it, it, is, still, it is still remarkable. I actually think the Talmud's pluralism goes beyond what we usually, like the, so the, this is my other way of being an academic. I could say, oh, the conventional pluralism is not enough. There is actually more pluralism in the text. So the way I do this is I say that um, we tend to think of pluralism in the sense that there are named rabbis in the text who have different positions. Sometimes they disagree with each other. And there's tolerance for those named positions. Um, but it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. In my, in my, um, again, in my first book, I, um, I pointed out that Within the Talmud itself, because of the way the Talmud is like a collage that gathers in an anthology of all kinds of works that were floating around, the rabbis have these stories that allow you to get outside of the rabbinic space and outside of the rabbinic mindset that allow you to like, understand what that position is of someone who's not in the rabbinic community. And they, 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 they are able to stand outside their position and critique their own practices. So there's a level of rabbinic pluralism that's, that goes beyond the explicit level that people, everyone sees when it says Rabbi so-and-so says X and Rabbi so-and-so says not X. That is an important level of pluralism, but there's also a level at which actually in the Talmud itself, the rabbi's notion of law is open to input from other discourses like theology, like medicine, like what passed for science in their days. Like they don't necessarily privilege their position. They're open to dialogue in, in ways that people often don't recognize. And one of the things I point out in my book is that over the course of Jewish history, because of reasons having to do with the need to turn the Talmud into a concrete, definitive legal text, the later rabbis turned the Talmud in a, into a much more monochromatic text. And so people like Maimonides, who in his Mishnah Torah really codifies Jewish law and makes it singular, unique, he's taking out many of the features of pluralism. Um, so the, the Talmud is actually a remarkably pluralistic text. So there, there you go. There you have it both ways. <laughs> yes? Uh, two questions. One would be, uh, do you see any increase in Talmud being taught in the conservative and reform movements? And the other question would be, is there, has there been any, been any attempt to create a more modern Talmud to uh, address many of the modern issues that we, we deal with today, from heart transplants to cremation, to patrilineal Jews, to all the questions that have come up really in the 20th and 21st century. So the first question was about um, non-Orthodox study of the Talmud today. And the second question was about the creation of a contemporary Talmud that will carry forward the Talmud's project to deal with contemporary issues. 
So on the first one, I'll, I'll point you to my book. In my book, one of the goals of my book was also to, to um, not allow the Talmud to be entirely owned by the Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox, but to describe a lot of the different new readers that have developed around the Talmud, particularly in the last 30 years. So the Talmud has developed a very broad readership in Christian circles. It has also developed a broad readership in Israeli non-Orthodox circles. So, for example, Ruth Calderon getting up in the Knesset and, and making a speech on her first day in the Knesset and quoting the Talmud as a secular Jew and talking about what it meant to her. So one of the things I point out in, my, in, the, in the book is that um, you could chart, there's a set formula for how modern factions of Judaism deal with the Talmud. They symbolize the Talmud as the Talmud represents tradition, and they symbolically push away, and they say, we don't want anything to do with the Talmud anymore. And then they come back, after they're established, they come back, reclaim, and reinterpret it. Because the Talmud is so varied and allows for, there's so much space in it for interpretation, you can come back and do a feminist uh, interpretation of the Talmud. So for example, there is um, uh, a feminist commentary of the Talmud that's, that's currently in 12 of the 15 volumes are already out. So academics have been producing feminist commentary to the Talmud, right? So it's completely, completely different perspective on things. Um, in Chicago, where I'm from, there is a yeshiva called Svara, which is a yeshiva for um, people who are gay, lesbian, queer, that is deliberately invested in queering the Talmud, in trying to find space in the Talmud for the queer experience. Um, and that's inspired by the work of Daniel Boyarin, who I mentioned earlier, who in a book called Unheroic Conduct, talks about how the Talmud implicates a completely different model for masculinity than the modern Western European model of masculinity. That the whole notion of Talmud and Talmud study was a different Jewish notion of what it meant to be male. And there was, there was bookishness and, and physical weakness involved. And what it meant to be female was a certain strength that has also been changed in modernity. So um, the, the Talmud is being studied. And one of, the, one of the fascinating modern thinkers who's employed the Talmud, the French theorist Emmanuel Levinas, um, who, um, start, who who is in the circle of French critical theory, including people like Jacques Derrida or Michel Foucault, Levinas produced um, a set of Talmud readings. And this, answers, this kind of answers both of your questions in some ways. He started out producing these Talmud readings because he was invited to speak to a group of French Jews. They would have this like, annual event for young French Jews. And it was specifically something that was not like typical French Jewish community stuff. And they'd invite, they would invite Levinas to speak. And what Levinas would do would, was take a passage of the Talmud and update it according to the present. So if you look at Levinas's Talmudic readings, what he's essentially doing is he's bringing the Talmud into the 1960s. So all of the late 60s cultural revolution stuff in France, workers' rights, egalitarianism, it all gets interwoven with his interpretations of the Talmud. So the, because the Talmud has encouraged interpretation rather than um, replication, that's typically what people do in modernity. So in, like, instead of like, you ask the question, like, do people produce a Talmud nowadays um, that's going to deal with the problems of modernity? So like in certain circles, like in, in certain orthodox circles, that, that has a very narrow definition. Like in certain orthodox circles, there will be responsa written about you know, kidney transplants and the legal ramifications of that, that will draw upon the entire discourse of Talmud, what I call the enhanced Talmud, all the Talmud and its commentaries and its other literatures and all, all kinds of things like that. Um, 
But there are responsa produced by the reform movement. There are responsa produced by the conservative movement. There are responsa in Israel is a very popular thing called shut SMS, text message responsa. Um, there, I mean, so it, it's really, really amazing that the Talmud keeps taking on new forms in, in, in new ways. And, uh, and, and I think that's, that's one, of the, one of the things that makes the Talmud fascinating is that, that it has allowed for a certain flexibility that after it gets kind of pushed away. And so like this feminist pushing away that's happening with some of this artwork, it, it then gets, you then get the feminist commentary of the Talmud that goes back to the essential materials and rereads re it and reclaims it. Um, we had the same thing with Hasidism. Hasidism originally said, we don't want anything to do with the Talmud. The Talmud is the standard of misnagdic life. And they pushed it away for a century. And then they came back and said, we can read the Talmud as Hasidim. Um, and now, like, if you're a Hasidic Jew, you study Talmud as much as a misnagdic Jew. Like, the Hasidic yeshivas have Talmud in their curriculum. Now, I don't know that that's a good thing, because I'm not, I'm not so sure Talmud is the best curricular choice. But it is a reality. And on the reform model, I'll also say... Um, in 19th century, it looked like the reform was going to completely eliminate Talmud. It looked like where it was heading. But it could never really quite do it. Um, there were thinkers, individual thinkers, who, who really wanted to do that. And, but they never really quite managed it. And um, because of that, it was never eliminated from the curriculum in the United States, even in the Pittsburgh platform, when they, when they re-envisioned the rabbinic curriculum, they never got rid of the Talmud. The Talmud study was always essential for rabbinic training. And then, around 25 years ago, this whole movement of traditionalism started within Reform Judaism, where they started recommitting to the Talmud. And so now the Talmud is even more central to rabbinic training. So that it's, it, it happens in the different movements differently, but some of the same things are there. Yes? You had mentioned that you had one professor who opened your eyes to a new way to study Talmud that really inspired you. Can you tell us about that, please? Um, I was asked about my, my teacher who inspired me to study Talmud. So um, my teacher, Rav Shmuel Nacham, was uh, my teacher in a yeshiva. He wasn't a professor. In fact, I don't think he has a college degree. Um, but he was an iconoclast. And he was, kind of, was self-taught and knew a lot. And I did not realize, because I was 17, 18, where he was getting some of the material and information from. Like, I, I didn't realize that. I'm not sure he was getting the material from explicitly critical scholars, but his way of thinking was very historical and very critical. So suddenly, it made, we had to read every text, whether it was the Talmud itself or the commentary on the Talmud, the syntax of the sentence mattered. We were going we to take its textual meaning very seriously, which it had not mattered before in my studies. So suddenly, we were reading these things very slowly. And when we started to do that, and we started to read, and, and when you read it slowly, you start to see the actual deep down underlying contradictions that were the basis for the medieval commentaries. Suddenly, the medieval commentaries started to make sense because I could appreciate them as readers. I could see that they were struggling with some really core issues in understanding the text. And now this project of Talmud study, which had never really, it, it didn't hold together for me in the way that I was taught because I was taught in a traditional method that doesn't really hold together. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it's, it's less like a puzzle and more like art, the way I was originally taught. And I needed something that was a little bit more building from the ground up. So this was a much more step-by-step. -step. You build and you show how the medieval readers were reading the original materials and struggling with some core tensions. And it really teaches you how to be a better reader. 
And then you can, when you compare the medieval readers, you can appreciate the depth of their disagreements with one another. And that gives you space to create your own insights in, in abstract thinking about what they're talking about. So that was really the, the eye-opening epiphany for me um, when things started to, to be able to click and make sense. I was later um, in college, I was a math major. I had a double major in math and history. And that was a pure math major, so I would work on um, number theory. Like uh, when I was in college, that was when uh, Andrew Wiles proved Fermat's last theorem, and it was like front page news because no one had proved it. Um, I couldn't have written that proof, but I could read it um, because I was taking number theory and I understood the, the basics of it. And uh, it, it, it had a very similar feel to the way Talmud often feels to me, which is like you're building from some basic givens. You have some thorny contradictions, and, but you can, there, there is possibly a solution. And if you can find it, it's incredibly satisfying. So this is, this is what Talmud has been for me pretty much ever since. Um, in, in a traditional framework, um, I think of the Talmud as, as studied for intellectual interest, but of no practical consequence, <laughs> uh, <laughs> such that the, the principle that I typically point to is halakha kabatrai. Essentially, that, we, that in a traditional framework, we follow the most recent generation's views, and we can't jump over them. So I don't care that Maimonides said something interesting or that Thomas said something interesting. You hold by what the 20th century leaders said, and now 20th century. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, that legal mechanism of, of halakhaka batrai and kind of how that's been used um, and kind of how that, how that emerges and if there's other forms like that which, which are designed to prevent um, halakhic evolution and innovation, um, and also to make the Talmud uh, uh, basically irrelevant in its, in its innovation. So uh, the question is, uh, there is this concept of hilchata kebatrai, or the, the law follows the latest view, and, uh, and there's the feeling that because of that, and because traditional learning is really more theoretical than practical, um, you're not going to use the Talmud to go back in time and resuscitate some rejected view and radically transform the law in any way because you're kind of stuck with your recent generation of rabbis and what they've come up with. So uh, I'll back up a little bit about this. The Talmud itself, as I mentioned, does not resolve things. So when the Talmud started to be the program for world Judaism in the 8th through 10th centuries, this is a time when um, Islam was becoming institutionalized. And the Jews who lived around Islam took advantage of their proximity to power to institutionalize Judaism alongside it. So between the 8th and the 10th centuries, as Islam is becoming institutionalized, Judaism is becoming institutionalized too. So there are these two yeshivas in Baghdad, in Babylonia, um, in present-day Iraq, that grow in size and become very large central institutions that are drawing students from Palestine, Israel, from Egypt, from Yemen, from as far away as Portugal or Rome, and they're coming to study in Babylonia because that is now the headquarters of world Judaism, the yeshivas in Babylonia. The curriculum there was the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud. Now, because the, the leaders of these institutions wanted the Talmud to become the, um, the program, they, they basically crown themselves, they sometimes talk about themselves as kings. Some of their, their literature they, they, they talk about, and they have like succession where the sons inherit the fathers as the heads of the yeshivas. But they also sometimes talk about them as the Sanhedrin, as the Supreme Court of Jewish law. So rabbinic literature famously imagines a, a Jewish Supreme Court. Uh, the Mishnah has a whole tractate Sanhedrin. Um, historically, there was no such thing. But, but the Mishnah imagines a, uh, a Sanhedrin. And 
the Goniums sometimes think of themselves in this way. And because they, they now are spending a lot of their time thinking of themselves as practical, legal, final result people, their curriculum becomes a way of studying Talmud for a final legal outcome. It's during the Gaonic period that the responsa are introduced. And responsa, during the Gaonic period, you would write a letter to the Gaonic yeshiva, and then the yeshiva would respond. So it had the institutional imprimatur of this institution, and the institution was the one that processed the material and gave you the response. It was part of the curricular duties of the yeshiva to answer these letters. It, over the course of doing this, during the Gaonic period, during this two and a half century period, the Gaonim started to think that the Talmud wasn't a great text for them to use. The format was not right. So they started to turn the Talmud into a code version of itself. They would create, they created digests, halachic digests, legal digests, that distilled the Talmud to its final legal position. Or they created, they sometimes created manuals for certain legal areas. They, they like create a manual about the laws of this area. Um, so this is, and, but in order to do this, they had to digest what was going on in the Talmud. How do you, how do you turn the Talmud into a final outcome? So they came up with a sec, set of what legal scholars like to call second order rules. A set of rules about rules, about what to do when you have contradictions. And so your Hilchot the law following the last one, originates as a second order rule that actually in the Talmud means that the law follows the last one in the literature, in the text, in the textual presentation of the Talmud. Whatever the Talmud's passage ends with, that's what you, that's what you decide by. So it's actually not, now it often happens in Talmudic passages that the last point is the historically latest, but it doesn't have to be the case. Sometimes it's not the historically latest because of the way the Talmud works. Um, but they had lots of other rules. They had lots of other rules. The law follows the, the most verbose passage of the text. So if you have a Talmudic passage which, which spends 90% of its material on something and then the last 10% is on something else, the law follows the 90% and not the 10%. Of course, these rules then come into conflict with one another. They then had rules about like if Rabbi, so Rabbi X fights with Rabbi Y, we usually follow Rabbi X, except in these cases. They created a whole list of second order rules to digest the Talmud. And... Um, and these allowed them to make the Talmud into a much more usable text, which happened over time. But I will say that throughout Jewish history, even though there was always a tendency to kind of distill and turn the Talmud into something that was more monochromatic, like Maimonides does, every time that happens, it's also resisted. And it's resisted by people who go back to the Talmud and reopen the conversation. So for example, the, the, the best example for this in modern period, the Vilna Gaon, who lived between uh, 1720 and 1797, the Vilna Gaon, you know why he's called the Vilna Gaon? Because he, he doesn't care about any of these rules. Like he acts like he's from the Gaonic period. He goes back to the Talmud and reads everything anew in light of the literature. It's, he, he, he skip piggybacks over eight centuries of scholarship and rereads everything in light of his own interpretation of the original text. So how do you deal with a figure like that who is venerated but is doing something that is against something like Hilchat HaKibatrai? Oh, if you call him a Gaon, you say, well, he's the exception to the rule. He's allowed to do that. We all are not allowed to do that. But you can, you can constantly find examples of this. So I will say that in modernity, um, with the rise of reform in the early 19th century, there was a tendency among early reformers to think that the way to make, the way to reform Jewish practice was to go back into the Talmud and to find more lenient positions 
that would allow for Judaism to become more modern. It's 1820s, you see this happening with like conversations about organs and mixed choirs, and they're coming up with, with um, halakhic arguments within the Talmud itself for why these should be okay. Um, you see it again in the 1860s and 1870s when what today is conservative Judaism starts to emerge in Germany as positive historical Judaism. And the founders of that movement were themselves Wissenschaft, Jewish studies scholars in Germany. And they go into this material thinking they're going to liberalize things on the basis of this. And the problem is that the ability to go back into the Talmud and find other opinions is not necessarily a liberalizing tendency. It's a tool. But you can just as easily go back into the material and find more conservative tendencies, which also happens constantly throughout Jewish practice. So I would say, like, if we're really honest about it, the really great legal thinkers of Judaism, the people who really are paradigm shifters, um, people in terms in the recent years, someone like Moshe Feinstein, who's died in the, in the 80s, I think, but was the last person who's kind of like recognized as like a free-thinking response a writer who could really revolutionize things with the stroke of a pen, um, he would routinely rethink entire Talmudic conversations in order to get to the outcome that he wanted to get to. Um, sometimes he would do this for lenient purposes, sometimes for stringent purposes, kind of dependent on his politics on a given issue. Um, so uh, there, was a, there was a dissertation that Norma Valmel Joseph wrote about Feinstein about women's issues, for example. So he's not, he's not the greatest feminist. but for things like smoking, he's kind of pretty good. Like, so it depends on like what your issues are. Um, so I, I would say that like, what what needs what what can possibly happen, and you and I have talked about this also. What can possibly happen now, is that with the rise of an educated laity, and with the rise increasingly of more people studying Talmud and Dafyomi and other places, um, people have a, now have a greater opportunity to act as their own religious guides and to produce sort of meaningful responses to the tradition on their own. And so this model, the more we, we set up the model of people being able to go back into the text at various levels and encounter it and develop a meaningful relationship with it, which I think is what's going on in a lot of places um, in modernity, I think the more likely it is that, uh, that people will be able to get the kind of result that they're looking for. Well, let's take one last question. I'm really glad you asked that question because probably everyone here in the room has some version of this question, the Gemara versus Talmud question. And I so I, I like forget about it, and it's really something that I should always mention. So Gemara and Talmud are synonyms. Gemara is an Aramaic term, Talmud is a Hebrew term. I use the term Talmud because Talmud is the original term. When the rabbis talked about their own practice, they referred to it as Talmud. The original learning practice that became the books that we have was called Talmud. Where did Gemara come from? So as part of the Christian persecution of the Talmud, at various points in history um, after printing, there began to be censoring rules about what Jews could and couldn't print in their Talmuds. The Basel edition, 17th century edition, this is a post-Reformation, post counter-Reformation edition of the Talmud. The Basel edition of the Talmud the, the censor decided that the word Talmud was itself anti-Christian. Because if the Talmud is an anti-Christian document, then the word Talmud is anti-Christian. 
So every time the word Talmud appeared in the Talmud, it had to be replaced with the word Gemara. Which is why if you look at today's Vilna edition, you'll see that like you have the Mishnah and then you have the Gemara with Gimel Mem. But that is entirely a post-Basel phenomenon. You can find printed editions that are before Basel that would have a tough Lamed here instead of a Gimel Mem for Talmud instead of Gemara. It's just a substitution that happened at some point. But it is true that this is sort of another thing that happened. Academics tend to talk about the Talmud, while traditional learners tend to talk about the Gemara. They're talking about the same thing, though. Friends, please, please join me in uh, thanking. <laughs>